This mini-sode is an interview I did with Max of Saga Experience, which is a software tool that's trying to create a genre-agnostic virtual tabletop plus RPG physics engine thing software tool. You can learn more at tellyoursaga.com. I was originally thinking this was a generic virtual tabletop tool and it would be system agnostic, but in the course of the interview I realized it was kind of its own thing. I thought it was still an interesting interview and I thought our listeners would be interested in it, so I chosen to release it as a mini-sode. It kind of gives an idea of some of the interesting things that are happening in the RPG space that I think will ultimately help our hobby. Also, we nerd out about math and numbers at some point and how that intersects with RPGs, and I imagine there's a non-zero number of mathards in the audience who may find that interesting. If you're not interested in this, skip this one. Our normal episode will be out this week as well. If you found this topic really interesting, or if you super didn't, drop us a line. Either way, magethepodcast at gmail.com, at magethepodcast on Twitter, discord.me slash magethepodcast, and tell us what you'd like for future mini-sodes. And with that... On with the show. Hi, Mage fans. This is your host, Terry Robinson, with Mage the Podcast. And my guest today, Max, with Saga Experience, which is a storytelling environment, or uh, more broadly, a virtual tabletop piece of software. And I knew nothing about it until Max approached Mage the Podcast. And I look forward to learning about what it is. So first off, Max, how you doing? Thanks, Terry. Uh, doing pretty well, uh, all things considered, in the current environment. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. Gladly. The world of tabletop RPGs has exploded in weird directions, and we're still kind of in that. I, I won't even say that we're in the adolescent phase. We're almost in a pre-adolescent phase where, like, we're young children who want to be uh, princess astronauts and, like, philosopher archaeologists. And when I see tools and items that go so clearly outside of what exists at current, it gets me excited. Even if that thing doesn't come to fruition, it suggests there's enough smart people with enough passion and drive to create something cool. And your tool kind of looked like one of those possible avenues. Can you tell us what Saga Experience is? Yeah, so so we really hope it is something new. And, and we think it is. Uh, your, your point on Princess Astronauts is, is pretty cool because... It's this bit of a child in each of us that really has some exciting story to tell. And we want those stories to be believable. Uh, and I, I want to sort of juxtapose that with realistic, right? Princess Astronaut may not be realistic, but the situations that Princess Astronaut gets into might be believable. And Princess Astronaut has hopes and fears and, and uh, ways of approaching problems that can be really entertaining and that we can all learn from, right? So we want to enable people to share these stories. Saga Experience really came from uh, a friend and I a couple years ago looking to, to tell some stories remotely, cooperative storytelling, and we were looking at tools that existed for it. And there were some virtual tabletops, obviously, uh, on the market at that time, and they continue to get better quality as far as, you know, graphics and ability to share information, and that's great. But once we started thinking about it, we said, hey, as long as we're doing this all on a computer anyway, why not sort of reimagine the system? Why not take that processing power and use it to increase immersion in the story. Why not allow that processing power to increase immersion in the story, right? There's long been sort of a conflict between lots of numbers and sort of crunchy games and really easy to access storytelling games. Uh, and we think with processing power, we don't have to have that conflict. We can build in some really complex systems, but still have them pretty easily accessible by clicking a button or even in the case of, you know, skill checks or, or things of that variety, have them going on in the background. 
So you have tools like Roll20, which give you kind of a static desktop, or Discord, which allows for screen sharing or something like that. And Roll20 or Astral will allow you to build into it calculations. Like if you have common die rolls, you can just click the, I want to investigate this person's motivations, or I want to try and sneak by this person button, and it'll spit out the appropriate role with pre-populated difficulties. How is this different? Those are really handy, but, but I think those sort of operate within the confines of, of existing tabletop games, right? Tabletop games have been around in some form for, gosh, about 50 years. And what people have done is they've tried to create a facsimile of that on their computer. What we can do in Saga Experience is we can say, hey, you know what? In this case, we don't actually like a 1 through 20 distribution, for example. Or maybe we want to normalize a curve and we want average results to be something in, that would be analogous of you know, 8 to 12 to be more common and critical uh, successes or critical failures to be less common. Uh, we can program that in. And, and not to say that other platforms couldn't do that, but but I haven't seen them doing that. In addition, you, you talked about uh, sort of sensing intuition and seeing whether somebody's being truthful with you or trying to sneak past somebody. And I find that, at least in my experience, when I sit down and somebody says, okay, make a notice check, make a perception check, whatever it's called in you're using, you're immediately aware that something is happening. Maybe the maybe the game master is bluffing you. That's that's possible, but you don't want them to say every thirty seconds in the game, "Hey, roll a notice, check. roll a okay. perception check." That really pulls you out of the game. In in our system, if you are near in proximity and in stealth, stealth is being checked automatically. You'll notice something if it's there, and you'll get visual cues. So that to be then leans into the virtual tabletop or tactical tabletop aspect where I as a storyteller would in some way build out a world, have an entity, and the game would automatically check within certain parameters to see if a character noticed a thing. What is the, I guess you could say, world building aspect of Saga Experience look like then? We want to enable people to build the worlds that they envision. We've created it to be setting agnostic as much as we can, and we're collaborating with a lot of role players and a lot of storytellers in a lot of communities, uh, including hopefully yours, to find out exactly what that means and, and sort of tweak numbers, right? There are systems that work really well for a fantasy setting that don't work well for a sci-fi firearms, you know, different special abilities or whatever it may. So we're trying to bridge that gap in large part through system design, which which I'm really excited about. The other thing I'd like to highlight on the, the sort of virtual tabletop here is that because we're trying to increase immersion, we've opted for a sort of a close third person view, which, which you'll see if you look at any of our or YouTube clips. We have a mannequin that's sort of a placeholder, but the idea is that you see what your character sees. So you don't see the entire board, right? Uh, the entire level, the entire encounter. We've divided the Saga experience into story mode and encounter mode. Story mode is much more what you were talking about, you know, sort of on a Discord or Roll20 where we talk, we've got some sort of randomized roles, and it's resolved. Encounters for Anytime you get into a situation where location and relative location become very important. So you can imagine stealth encounters, places with lots of traps, combat, all of these times where you don't just want to talk on something like Discord because things get really confusing. Okay, so in my head, we're in a game setting and we are in what I'm going to call narrative mode. And then at sure. some point, the conversation back and forth escalates. I fail a socialized check of some sort, weapons are drawn, and I would like to drop into a tactical or action-based mode where I suddenly care who's doing what when in what order. Is that the point in which your tool allows me to bring up a garbage-strewn alleyway and then we go through the combat encounter that way? Or do you feel that we are always in the virtual world within this piece of software? 
I, I, you bring up a great point there. That is the point at which you as the narrator say, hey, I'm loading up the garbage strewn alleyway, right? We've got capability of creating levels. Uh, you can create them beforehand. We're always working on our sort of level editor tools with cool things like replication and, and all of that. Um, we're continually trying to upgrade the assets that we use. But when you're in the alleyway, you can describe the alleyway for the other people. Mm -hmm. But then if there's an altercation or you need to sneak through the alleyway and location becomes very important, then you say, okay, guys, encounter mode. Click a few buttons, encounter mode loads up around the characters, and you proceed with your encounter. That's also when a some turn-based sort of initiative system would occur. Another mechanic we're playing with on the computer is that we can have a dynamic initiative system. So... We've all been at the time at the tabletop game where we say, you know what, I really just want to take half my turn and see what happens. But it gets very confusing when when all sorts of players are jumping around. However, using Saga Experience, we're experimenting with systems that allow you to say, take a shorter amount of movement, and because you took less movement, you get to move again sooner. Uh, so I will call that taking a half turn. Sure, um, or a quarter turn, or a, you know whatever yeah. divided down. So. Now, is this something where you plan on having an asset library or there will be a community content portal where I can say, oh, I need a garbage strewn alley. I could spend 20 minutes and build one or I could download garbage strewn alley for dot map and just run that with pre-created avatars that my players have made. Yeah, so so that's a great, great point. Um, and, and this is something that uh, won't be released in our initial version. Um, right now, we're really sort of working on the sandbox aspect and, and you having the ability to make a good alleyway because there might not be one that's on the asset store. But we'd like to address that in sort of two ways, ultimately. Our vision is, one, to have procedurally generated assets. I'm a huge math geek by profession, and so eventually, with more time and funding, we'd like to do procedurally generated things. Hey, my characters went into a medium-sized dungeon. Let's load something up that's roughly this size. Great, it loads up, and then you can still edit it on the fly with all your tools. That's the first way. The second way, as you pointed out, would be community involvement. And I think for this Saga experience to be viable long-term, this is going to be, right? Not only could you make a garbage strewn alleyway and load it up and share with other people, but you could also make various miniatures, different creatures, add items to an item database, and individuals could load them into their own version of the software. And the other thing that's notable compared to every other piece of virtual tabletop software I've seen from the preview stills, as you mentioned, this is third person. This is not a top-down battle map view of any sort. With that kind of increased quality, or at least possibility of quality, do, do I need uh, RTX 2080 with ray tracing or anything to do this? Or like, what is the graphical level at current, if there's anything you could compare it to? Yeah, so graphical level at current is, I mean, obviously it's, it's all still in development. Terrain is a little blocky. Uh, we're going to go something Minecraft plus materials, okay, something like that. Creatures and characters and, and, and such are, are going to be three-dimensional, essentially miniature replicas. And that was actually very intentional because we want to distance ourselves from the sort of indie video game world. While things move around the map, very intentionally, there's not a ton of animation. One, that makes processing power, like, you don't have to run this on your crazy gamer machine, and that's good. Two, it also means that I don't just have three sword swings as animations, and so if somebody wants to swing their sword, they get to describe how they do it, right? There will be some minimal animation that shows, hey, you know, John attacked the dragon, but it won't show him swinging a sword, or heck, he might not even have a sword in his hand at that time. All of our item database is uh, done through text, 
You can equip things, you can equip whatever you want. This allows us to pull from an item database that can get huge, right? And we don't have to spend a ton of money on art assets. It allows us to spend more time, one, cut costs so that the project is actually viable, and two, spend more time on things like the level editor and interactions between characters. Okay. Uh, So we have talked about the tactical aspect and how it would very clearly allow you to uh, figure out what is happening in, in dense action situations. We've talked a little bit about the narrative part, but uh, to me, the tabletop interaction generally has three different modes. You have a development mode where you talk about what your character is ostensibly doing during downtime or when they're away from the group. Mm-hmm. Narrative, when the action is free-flowing. And then a tactical or action mode where everyone cares about who's doing what when. Do you provide any additional tools for those other two modes, development or narrative, such as providing a, uh, a quest log or keeping uh, some sort of list of events or something? Or is this really only something that we use when we get to that crunchy bit part? And I want to get a little bit away from the dice roller um, because it, it suggests, you know, polyhedral randomization, which is good and it's really fun. And there's that tactile feel of rolling the die and ah, it's, it can be so satisfying. But on a computer, in the experience of many people we've talked to, it's just it's not quite the same. Grabbing your mouse and sort of shaking it to roll the die is not as exciting as, as picking up that that weighted die and throwing it down the table. We provide a lot of that. And, and I think that that does become very relevant in a lot of sort of narrative mode. You've In narrative mode, you've still got your inventory, you've still got your character, you've got skills and abilities and everything else. And if you want to use them, you can go to your character sheet and click on them, right? And it sends that result immediately to the narrator, narrator, GM, whatever, whatever we want to call them. And it also provides them a table. So, right, we're using basically a 1 through 100 system. And, you know, if I want to climb, I can click on my climb check. It will immediately send that to the narrator, add in all the relevant modifiers, and it'll say, hey, narrator, Max's climb check is 103, whatever. And it also will provide the narrator a table. There's always kind of that annoyance of like, hey, these are games with a lot of rules. We have to page through a book for a long time to find what we want. And eh, I don't know, should 103 be able to climb that wall? I'm not quite so sure. So it'll give the narrator that table. And then perhaps most importantly, it will give the narrator the ability to accept or deny the check. So the narrator still has final call, which I think is very important because sometimes you just need to make the story work and you need to tweak something a little bit and not follow the dice. This is not a game run by a computer. It's a game run by you and your friends. It sounds like this is going to be system agnostic ish who is going to do the work then of tying everything together Uh, my thought is for instance uh, if one uses the system the cipher system which is used to power invisible sun numenera no thank you evil Uh, whenever i roll whenever i i I build a venture there there are four sets of inputs that i have i have character skills i have equipment i have spells or magic and then i have or technology for depending on the the, the skinning, and then I have mm-hmm. plus whatever uh, randomized role I have in that system. You don't necessarily have climb as a skill. So, for instance, I could have a plus three rope, which aids me by plus three every time I climb. But I could have a general skill of dexterous plus two that may apply, but it's not obvious procedurally what it would apply to and what it wouldn't. Who is doing that work of kind of knitting? those things together from a system perspective into a prearranged module or setup that I use within the game. So I'd like to clarify a little bit that we're designing the system to be setting agnostic because we'd like it to work with science fiction, Western, you know, 
Cthulhu, high fantasy, whatever. The system itself will be largely dictated, right? Because we're reimagining it and existing systems with things like dynamic stealth and dynamic initiative don't necessarily translate well, right? You might want to change the probabilities so that people have a higher likelihood of sneaking overall, but the system is constantly making checks. So the odds of them messing up at some point are, are pretty high, but that might involve retooling the numbers. So who is responsible for that? Myself and my team are, are mostly responsible for that. However, if you have an item that you say you want to give a, a particular bonus to, to a skill, there will be the opportunity for people to edit the item database. So who determines whether that rope helps you in, in all things dexterous? Well, did you put a rope in the database or is there a rope already in the database? And actually every item, because we're not animating a lot of this, database space is cheap. And querying the database is relatively cheap. So, you know, if you want a rope that helps you on all things dexterous, you just need to go in, add a rope, and then say, well, it helps me on this, but it doesn't help me on that. Uh, if you want to make a judgment on the fly, and you haven't done that in advance, the narrator would, I suppose, just, uh, I mean, they do retain the ability to fudge the numbers a little. So they see that Terry rolled 105. You know, normally it'd be 110, but you've got the special rope. So yeah, yeah, he did it this time. Cool. Okay, so I am not playing Mage the Ascension in Saga Experience. I am playing a version of Saga Experience that I have reskinned to match Mage the Ascension then? Yes, very likely. Or that you've reskinned to do something else with, right? We would ultimately like to, you know, expand lists of abilities and skills uh, far beyond our initial offerings, and that'll largely depend on our, our funding and our ability to, to keep going with the project. Okay. Uh, the reason I ask is everything you've said so far to me is fundamentally character-centered and simulationist versus games that are player-focused. Uh, for instance, uh, Fate. Uh, there are a fair number of mechanics where the character isn't doing something, but the player is invoking their character's importance in the narrative to achieve something. Is there a way that something like that gets involved? There certainly is, and we, we've talked a little bit about it. Currently, we focused almost entirely on the story and the character. There are no direct mechanics currently in the works for, for a system like Fate. However, we are trying to keep uh, narrator tools flexible as possible to, to sort of override anything. So if there's a rule set you don't like, initially it might take a little work to, to work around it, but, but eventually, hopefully, that'll be pretty seamless to, to override things you don't, right? I, I don't want to track food consumption, encumbrance, whatever, all of these things that we sort of hand wave away, you'll have the option to use or, or not. I, I realize that's not the, the player focus that you're asking. I just wanted to emphasize that there will be rules that you can sort of activate or deactivate depending on how gritty you want to be. So it is starting at least with something that is highly simulationist and then going from there if we want to invoke GNS theory. Okay. Now, one of the things that got me very curious in our initial conversation is you had mentioned your background as a lawyer and a mathematician. What's your favorite number? My favorite number is often, let's see, that's a, that's a good question. Yeah, not actually a question I get asked all that often. So if you'd like to go first, go, go for it. Currently, I am enamored with phi. I just okay. like the idea of having a most irrational number in terms of yeah. a number that is most difficult to express as a uh, as a ratio of whole numbers. And it's just absolutely pleasing to me. And that tickles me because it's also very trivially expressible as one plus square root of five over two. So yeah, and a number of numbers went through my head. I think the most interesting of them and, and least arbitrary would be E uh, for all the associations. Also because when I say E is a number, you know, yeah. Half the people like it, well done. And half the people like, wait, what? No, that's not a, you know. I, I think from an intellectual level, probably E. From an instinctual level, I really like 102, but I can't give you a good reason that makes a good soundbite for that one. Oh, that's entirely fine. 
I think my favorite weird example of where E has popped up in the same way that Pi pops up in places it has no business being. To me, like Pi is the super popular girl where sure. where E is the actual protagonist of the movie is the person like next to them that really has a bunch of charming features. And not until midway through does the protagonist realize he really should be going after E instead of Pi, like in the high school drama version of Numbers in My Head. But someone had a, an exploding dice system where whenever you say you would roll a d10 you would keep rolling the d10 until you got a result that was lower than any previous result oh wow the outcome of your die roll would be whatever the highest value rolled so far would be so if you roll a two and then a five and then an eight and then a one your roll is an eight he was asking for a generalized way of calculating this and eventually i figured out one but the thing that pleased me a lot was the number of times on average you will have to roll a die before you get a result that drops as the number mm-hmm. of sides of that imaginary polyhedra approaches infinity the number of rolls you have to make approaches e and uh hmm. I, I found that wow. v- very pleasing and then when you look at it as you're like oh it's limit of one plus one over n is n goes to infinity it kind of like it kind of makes sense you're like oh okay I'll, I'm sure, squ- it's, it's, it's yeah squ- it's not the uh tangential but you've, you've seen the uh the block collision problem where a frictionless plane and two blocks hit each other and the uh as the mass of one block increases by orders of magnitude the number of collisions approaches pi oh interesting like the number of bounce back collisions digits so it's yeah so it's like Big block hits little block, knocks it into a wall, bounces back, and you know, little block bounces back and forth a bunch to, until it transitions force back to the big block. And if big block is oh. ten orders of magnitude bigger, it's been around a while. Grant Sanderson did a thing on it. And once the the little block starts hitting the big block, the big block is going the the distance is going to increase. Uh, and but at the same time, the small block is losing momentum. I, I presume to the big block, so it's its velocity is decreasing. So the time between impacts is increasing at some rate. Yeah. Okay. So, so it'll, it'll decrease and then it'll increase, right? Cause initially they'll get really close together as the big block gets closer to the wall uh, and then it'll decrease as they spread out more. Yeah. Uh, and if you do like the big block is a hundred times as massive as the small block, then it becomes, I think three, maybe that's 10 times. I think 10 times is three, a hundred times is three, 31. And so forth, and it counts up, and eventually you start seeing the. And it does have to do with the circle if you dig down deep enough. Anyway, there's a very interesting video. It is terrifying to me the the sheer amount of mathematics that did not exist in any visual form until like the late 20th century. Like the idea of Hilbert's space filling curve, like had never been graphed until 60 years after Hilbert had come up with a formalism for it. And then you're like, yeah, oh, I get it. But to talk about the the interesting probability thing here is one of the things we don't really get to do in a lot of tabletop rpgs is to me have interesting distributions so we Mm -hmm. generally are dealing with something that is either uniform which i hate which is your one to 20 here's your thing you need to roll above this number in fact one of my favorite ones was uh mike merles had tweeted out something where he was using a fistful of fate dodge fudge dice and he said well my players get to roll a fistful of these and if more are uh if if more say plus than minus something good happens and if more say minus than plus something bad happens and someone was like congratulations mike merles you have invented the coin flip like for instance one of the distributions we don't get to ever use at the table would be either anything with auto regression or uh, self-reversion or something like levy flight where your roles would have a 
streakiness to them where the result of a previous role would directly inform the distribution for the next role. So you could mm-hmm. come up with a scenario where a character would really be wailing away at someone, for lack of a better term, or the opposite. And that is something most tabletop RPGs don't get to do. Computationally, is there anything interesting you're doing in regards to that, like types of distributions or types of outcome consideration that are simply impossible to do at a tabletop? To, to sort of piggyback on your point, this really reminds me of like NBA Jam. He's on fire, you know, um, right? You've made so many shots that your shots have a higher probability of going in. Yeah, so we, we've talked a lot about this. So I, I think the streakiness is a really interesting point. And when we've talked some about that, we've talked both about streakiness. Hey, he's really on fire. He's doing a great job. And so he gets some sort of a luck bonus, right? Or, or change distribution, right? Mm-hmm. Rather than a flat bonus. And we've also talked about, you know, sort of regression to the mean. Like you've been really unlucky for a long time. Oh my goodness, I've rolled so many natural ones tonight. Like, just cut me a break, right? And so we've talked about both of those. We're, we're still experimenting a little bit. Our physics engine, our sandbox is pretty well up. Uh, we're adding a lot of things, but but we're still definitely tweaking numbers and playing around with them to, to see what feels right. Uh, hopefully, middle of uh, 2021, we'd like to release it to a bunch of people and get playtesters and all of that. You know, we'd love, we'd love to see some of your listeners there and hopefully get some of them on board so that they can control. On, on a really basic level for the distribution, we've played around with a lot of things that approach normal distribution with the idea that like probably a, eh, a slightly less than slightly flattened normal distribution is, is sort of the default that we've been playing with because we like the idea that you have some consistency especially with a computer it can feel like everything's really randomized and out of your control and like it's cheating you somehow the average a bit more likely just like when you roll two dice a seven is much more likely a two or a, a twelve mm-hmm. success dice but we've, we've talked about mechanics as i said that like you're you're on a good streak or a bad streak and, and how do we correct for that um, and how do we create these really epic moments where you get, you know, explosive dice, right? Can have some crazy cool moments in those systems. So how can we approach that? Putting a few different of those potentially in the prototype or alpha. Uh, when I think of exploding dice, I think of the fact that they are almost always worse than just tens count as two successes. It's it's one of those things where you're you're suddenly dealing with one in a thousand or one in 10,000 probabilities, which quite simply... Sure don't happen any more often than roughly one in a thousand or one in 10,000 respectively. The way a lot of other systems get around that is either with something like the the Star Trek adventure system where I build up momentum, where I gain this pool of bennies essentially that I can cash in for additional dice, which on a normal roll wouldn't do much. But when I'm really trying to destroy the Borg cube and suddenly normally I have two dice to fire the ship's phasers and now suddenly I have seven, the odds of me getting that what would normally be one in a thousand result but now now is reduced to maybe a one in three result is suddenly there. The, the fact that you're positing different distributions is seemingly something where I, as a storyteller, could go, I want a gritty distribution versus yeah. I want something that is, say, log normally distributed or even let's go nuts, Pareto distributed, where most of yeah. the weight of the distribution is in that tail, is in the extreme outcomes. Is that a knob you see me being able to, to pick then where I could pick essentially gritty, normal, fantasy, and heroic as modes? And that would tell me kind of how likely the players are to succeed or how spectacular the outcomes could be. Sure, absolutely. And this is this is the sort of thing that, you know, these can lead to really great storytelling moments, right? And so you can tweak the distribution. I mean, you can't currently, but we've been looking at that. And I think that's absolutely something that we could open up for. Hey, how do you want the die rolls to be? Or the randomizations to, to create? That's an easy formula to get in. It would take very little time uh, for the computer to recalculate and it just it's just going to plug all random variables into a different randomizer basically um especially if we're scaling that across the entire system that wouldn't take a ton of time if we scale it if we say well i want some of them to be parader distributed and some of them to be normal and a few to be uniform then i think we run into a 
much bigger problem from the coding aspect, right? Mm-hmm. You have to go back. And just for the listeners, um, uh, the Pareto distribution is one I'm particularly fond of. It pops up in cases where extreme values are most of what happens. So for instance, one of my favorite examples is uh, rainfall in areas that do not receive a lot of rain. If you are in a area like Zion National Park in the United States, the vast majority of rain occurs on one day a year. Uh, On average, it rains about 15 days in the year, but that one day is responsible for over 50% of it. So it's one of those things where given that you've received at least a certain amount of rain on a given day, the odds that you will receive twice that much is very high. And once you've reached that second amount, that twice as much rain, the odds that you've received yet two times more rain than that is very high. Another case where a Pareto distribution pops up is if you're waiting for a response from someone. So if you send a message to a celebrity or, or customer support, if you don't receive a response in the next in the first 48 hours, your odds of receiving it in the next 48 hours after that are quite low. If you then don't receive it in the first 96 hours, your odds of receiving it in the next 96 hours are quite low and it kind of tails off towards zero. But uh, the Pareto distribution uh, breaks a lot of assumptions about convergence to the normal, which is one reason why I love it. And it really gives you those outliers. And it is a distribution that actually pops up in everyday life when we're talking about extreme events. So I know, how can you be as cool as me? But anyway. So, well, I'm going to give you a shot right here. <clears throat> you, you're talking about favorite numbers, and, and it seems like Pareto distribution is probably your favorite distribution. Mine would be the Poisson distribution. Okay, yeah. Uh, in, in no small part because it was discovered, um, I believe, by an army engineer when he was discovering how many people died from mule kicks. Yes, from um, being kicked in the chest by mules. But it's one of those things where almost all RPG distributions are somewhat stationary. And this now allows you to go to something else. When you're coming up with ways of classifying it, do you ever think about it in terms of noise? Like uh, pink noise, brown noise, white noise in terms of the distribution of outcomes? Or are you generally thinking about it distributionally based? That's, that's interesting. So I, I've really only approached it distributionally. So I'll, I'll definitely have to look at noise. There was a GDC talk where one of the uh, people talking about what happens in a RPG and they thought of it in terms of noise, where there is a medium value and they, they are saying to themselves, do we want the odds of an outlier to increase with the size of the outlier? Do we want small deviations to be very likely and large deviations to be unlikely? Do we want uh, it to be strictly proportional? And that was kind of how they thought about everything in their RPG world as a start. And then that leads into some mathematical questions of if you're at a given point and you're trying to guess where something will ultimately arrive at, is it constant additive or multiplicative? But that's sure. that's neither here nor there. If I use this, am I also going to need to be running Discord along with it or have a Google Doc open? Or will this also take care of recording events in it, like a free entry field and a uh, VoIP client? Or do I need to already have that when I before I start using it? I think I'm going to get these in the right order. I'm going to say yes and no, at least initially. Uh, we will have a location-based VoIP built in. And and we want it to be location-based because right, this is another thing that you can't do in a tabletop, really, is you know it's kind of hard to have these side conversations and things of that nature. Okay. Uh, particularly in counter mode, if sound is based on off of the location of your character, you start to really hear what happens. And if another party member gets ambushed, you might just not hear it. So we're really excited about that. 
Uh, as far as events recording, yes, that's something we'd love to do. There will be some basic things probably for the narrator, uh, but probably not a bunch of free entry stuff for, for the characters. At least initially, that's something we'd love to add. We've talked a lot about the narrator being able to share things, you know, similar to a lot of existing systems. Sharing PDFs, sharing pictures to, to set the scene, right? That would absolutely, that's absolutely something. So we've talked about a, a bunch of features so far. What are the things that you are building in at current, have built in, or feel like you will build in that we have not yet discussed? I'd like to talk a little bit about something. We talked about computers tracking things, right? And often there are certain things that just sort of get hand-waved away. And <clears throat> it might be because they're not fun, but sometimes it's because it just takes a lot of effort to keep track of things. So classic examples would be food, uh, encumbrance, and light sources. I would posit that all of these can have a much bigger effect on games than we traditionally see in a, in a tabletop. The idea of exploring a cavern and running out of food really puts you on a time. The idea of, oh shoot, it's actually really hard to carry all this treasure out provides, you know, it might be a headache, and if so, you can turn encumbrance off, right? This is definitely one of those settings we'll have. But if you want to try and figure out how to get something from point A to point B, there can be some really interesting problem solving, some good educational opportunities and some good storytelling. Uh, and perhaps my most favorite of these is light. We see this a lot in movies, we see it in video games, we see it in real life when we walk outside. But Often we just sort of hand wave and say, hey, there's enough light, you can see what's going on. Or you can't, but you still see everything on a board in front of you. Because we're using a third person character, each character can have their own light source. And if something's outside of that light source, they won't see it. And what you see is not the same as what your friend will see, right? So it really gets you into that character in, in a higher degree of detail. And I think provides for some really cool gameplay, but also storytelling opportunities. And that sounds like one of those things where I can take advantage of the fact that the game tracks things individually for different players, where if I am a person who is dark adjusted in some way, I am a vampire that can see very well in low night light or a uh, werewolf who has access to the IR spectrum that the, the software will theoretically be able to show me my differently or better illuminated room in a way that uh, my mortal chums may not be. Absolutely. And, and that's, that's, again, that's a feature that we have designed and sort of planned how it will work. Uh, we're not in the process of coding that yet. Um, that's definitely something for, for the spring post-kickstart because, oh my goodness, the suspense of being in a mostly dark room or, heck, your light goes completely out. Oh, shoot, what do you do? Right? That might not be something that all, that all people want to experience, and, and that's fine, right? This is, a, this is a system that should enable people to tell their stories. I, I'm, I'm really excited about that and, and the implications for things like stealth. You're sneaking in the dark, or did you sneak through the light, or did you sneak in front of a person rather than behind them? Hmm. These are all variables that we can track pretty easily uh, using a physics engine. Currently, we're a, we're a two-person studio. The plan is, as long as we can keep expanding the software and keep expanding interactions, we will keep going. So the more I learn about this is, this is an attempt to create something that sits between an RPG computer game and our traditional virtual tabletops. I like the tabletop comparison a lot more than the RPG computer game. I mean, like, yes, the calculations are done by a computer, but I think it has a lot more in common with the sort of heavier storytelling. And the big thing is just that it has an area, right? It's run by you and your friends in a way that even computer games with a level editor, right? You can make up your own scenario and that's great, but often they don't really have anything to sort of smooth over the transitions. In this, you're in story mode, you didn't do any level edit, and then you get into a place where it really matters. Uh, I'll, I'll be putting a demo out on our, our YouTube channel shortly, and I'll design a very large, very large compared to what we've done before, uh, like Labyrinth or something, and I'll time-lapse it and just, just to show what the tool's capable of. That's not how I envision this being used. You know, I, I really think it's, you build it just when you need the locational stuff, right, just to streamline it. But I want to show that you could build a big thing. In, in a traditional computer game, you would have to build, really stitch it together with Discord or, or you know, whatever 
does this will this work if it is five of my friends around a table or does this presume approximate play one of our hopes is that you will start play here and then when COVID 19 is gone and you're all free to be in the same room again you'll get in the same room and you'll say you know what saga experience was a lot of fun i really like that light stuff. let's pull our computers up and, and still use that system right you'll still need a computer maybe ultimately mobile we'd love to make uh characters mobile accessible for that sort of reason and we'd love it if people did this around the table right i mean it's sort of a la old school land parties or something right and then you have a little banter on the outside which is great and a huge part of any tabletop experience uh so you had made mention to a kickstarter what is your financial model for this so if i'm interested in this uh, who do i cut a check to how often we will be launching a Kickstarter, but long-term for sustaining it, we, we have sort of three revenue streams. So the initial thing is we're going to sell this off, right? We will sell one seat of software, price point probably around $30. That's not binding, but that's that's what we're doing right now. Yeah. Um, it's not a high-end video game, but you know it, it needs to, to make some money so that we can keep per seat. That gives you the entire software as we have it at the time, and you'd buy you know four seats for, for you and three friends. Probably there will be some bundle discounts still in negotiations. A second way to fund this is because this is computer run, it is ideally made for streaming. This is just sort of a fringe benefit. Uh, we didn't think about this until an embarrassingly long time after we came up with the idea. Instead of trying to stream a game and putting cameras all over your gaming room, all of a sudden I can look at your screen, then I can look at my screen, and whoever, you know, maybe I look at the active player screen, maybe I can flip around on my own. Uh, that's great. We would love to do that. And then the third thing we sort of alluded to earlier um, is this sort of market right there will be a marketplace eventually this is a, a fair bit farther down the road we would really like to create a community of creators that are able to make some money from their creations so the ultimate vision down the line is to say terry you've uh, created an, an adventure path that you'd really like people to go through you've created it it got good reviews you sell it through us and we'll take some small percentage of it uh, for facilitating that makes sense and if we are interested in watching the progress of this or finding out when the Kickstarter occurs, how can we do that? Absolutely. So our website, uh, the studio's Epic Epoch, E-P-I-C-E-P-O-C-H. So the website is www.epic-epoch.com. Uh, you can also find us on Discord or on YouTube uh, by searching Saga Experience. And I'm hopeful that Mages the Ascension will be able to, to put perhaps these links uh, down below this podcast. Oh, yeah. Mages the podcast. This will be, be in the show notes. So that, that would be amazing. Uh, follow those links. We'd love to hear from you. We're in development. We'd really like community involvement. Uh, tell us what's important to you in your games, and we will do our best to try and try and work things in so that this is the best experience for everybody. Awesome. Thank you so much.